You can go ahead and be seated. Uh, my name is Rob Collis, and I'm on our pastoral team here, and it's a, a joy to be here with you today. Uh, a number of years ago, I went on a retreat. It was a, a spiritual retreat, and I went with a friend who had kind of organized all the details, and he had to stay at a, at a monastery. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, there's a monastery um, about 90 minutes east of here out in Mission. And it's, it's a Benedictine monastery with, with monks who wear real-life, like, monk outfits, which I'd never seen before. It was actually kind of surreal to see. It was kind of cool. Um, and before that trip, I just, I'd never met a monk either. And I didn't really get to meet or chat with them very much. They, they kind of keep to themselves and do their monk thing. But while we were there, they, they invited us to come eat dinner with them, which was very kind of them. And, and to this day, this is still one of the most memorable dining experiences I've ever had in my life. And my, my friend and I, we were, we were ushered through this little side door in the, the massive dining hall, through the side door to a, to a table in the front of the room. And we were brought in there before all the other monks came in, and we were taken to our seats. And as we got to our seats, we were told, like, I can just wait here just a few seconds. After a few seconds, all the monks started to, to stream in. And they came in single file, one by one, and they all knew exactly where they were supposed to sit. They all just kind of streamed in, went to their seats, and, and stood behind the chairs. And this was all very new to me, very novel experience. So I was just kind of watching, like, what's, what's happening? What's going on? And so they'll get in, they, they get to their seats, and then they start to sing. They start singing a prayer. I'm like, I don't know the words to this. I'm, I can't sing along either. I'm just going to keep watching. What's going on? OK, they, they've, they've sung. Now, now we can sit. We can sit. OK, I can sit now. And just whenever you go somewhere else where you've never been before, right, you're kind of watching for those cues to know how to, to follow along. And so everyone sits down, and they start serving the food, and no one's talking. No one talks the entire time. And the whole rest of the meal, we ate in silence. And you're saying, well, Rob, so what? Like, I eat in silence all the time. I just eat my food staring at my phone. What's the big deal? Like, that's just how people eat nowadays. But monks don't have cell phones. So I, they can't use that as an excuse. The, the whole thing was we eat together in silence. So after an eerily quiet dinner, one of the monks finally, like, we all kind of, well, they all stand up. They stream back out, which we'll just kind of wait there. And then they, they lead us out to that same little side door um, in the back. And after we are taken out by this monk, he, he explains to us, so this whole time, you were sitting next to the abbot of the monastery. This is the, the head guy in the monastery. We were sitting next to the abbot at, at the head table. And I had no clue. I had no clue. It was like we had been invited to the captain's table on a cruise ship, but we never got to chat with the guy. And he was wearing the exact same outfit as everybody else. We didn't know he was anything special. The whole time, we were in this, this place of honor, and we didn't know. And I mean, even if we did know, the whole thing was silent. So it was like, I've, I've got questions. I've, I've got really interesting questions to ask that guy. I want to know, like, what's it like to be a monk? Why do you do this? How do you lead a monastery? I couldn't ask him those questions either, because Again, quiet, weird, weird dinner, right? One day I want to have conversations with him, just because I'm curious. Anyway, after that whole thing, they were eating in silence. It was just a really memorable dining experience to me. In our passage today, we see another memorable dining experience. Um, fortunately, the table Jesus was sitting at was one where people are meant to have a conversation. If, if it was a dinner in silence, it would have been a very dull story to read right now. I don't really know what else I'd be able to say. Thankfully, it's not a dull story. In fact, whenever Jesus goes to dinner anywhere, it's never a dull time. This is the third time in Luke's gospel that Jesus has been invited to dinner at the home of a, a, a leading religious figure. And every time he comes to dinner, Jesus always makes things uncomfortable. 
he challenges the, these social conventions and the moral values that his host and the guests have. And so in our passage today, I want to look at the ways that Jesus does this. He does three things specifically that I want to look at. He talks about the place of honor, the path of humility, and the position of the host. So first I want to look at what Jesus has to say about the place of honor. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Uh, if you don't have a physical Bible, uh, you can pick one up in the back of the tables, or you can just turn it on in your phone. And if I see that you've got a, a warm illumination of your face today from a screen, I'm assuming that you're reading the Bible with me, not looking at X, just tweeting as I go along. <laughs> Why do they call it X? Anyway. Um, anyway, Luke chapter 14. Everything's also going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, so Luke chapter 14. I want to begin in verse 1. We read, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisee and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed them and sent him on his way. Now, Phil preached on that passage for us just a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to dwell on this too much. But we need to look at this text before we get to our passage today because this, this sets the scene for what's going on. Jesus is at the house of one of the leading religious figures in, in his town, in this town. And scholars suggest that this prominent Pharisee was probably the, the, the head guy in town for the Jewish synagogue. And it seems that Jesus has been invited to this head guy's home for dinner. Not only that, though, this, this head religious guy, because of the, the religious practices in that day and age, he wasn't just the head religious guy in town. He was also one of the leaders of the entire town, too. So this is a really important guy in, in this society. Jesus is rubbing shoulders with some really important people in this passage. And he's eating with them on a, on a Sabbath. It says, one Sabbath, which is kind of like the, the way that you would say, like, once upon a time on a Sabbath day. But one Sabbath, this raises for us this interesting context. Because it means that they had all just been at the synagogue that morning. They'd all been worshiping together. And actually, because Jesus is here in the passage and has been invited to this table, scholars suspect that Jesus had probably been the, the guest preacher that morning. So Jesus has likely been the guest preacher. He's spoken at the synagogue that morning. He's been invited to this table, and he's been watched all day long. And it says that they're watching him carefully, watching him closely. But you see, Jesus was watching them too. And in verse 7, we read, When he, that's Jesus, noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table... He told them this parable. So Jesus has been invited to a meal with some of the most important people in the town. And, and meals like this were really important back then. And meals sometimes function in a similar way today, too, because that's where people would rub shoulders with each other. Business deals would be struck and made around these tables. You get to know people, and people would be known by others. You get to know people who have power and influence in the society. And because of that, it was really important for them to, to look important to one another to feel significant. And they were vying for the places of honor at the table so that they could feel significant before all these other people. And I think if we just kind of step back a little bit from, from what's going on here and just kind of look what's happening underneath the surface, I think this points to something which is true of the human heart just in general. There's a desire of the human heart to have something, something which says that um, in one way or another, we all desire to feel special. 
It's the desire to feel special and to feel like we matter, to feel seen and to want to feel seen and significant. Uh, I remember a conversation I once had with a, a painter. He was a, an American folk painter named Ed, and he, he was older. Um, and he'd been thinking a lot about leaving a legacy, uh, leaving a legacy after he died. And he was telling me how he, he wanted to be remembered, and he said that he, he realized that after he died, all his, his friends and his family would have all these memories of him. And for as long as they lived, he would be remembered because of them. But then he realized that those people would also one day die, and once they died too, all those memories and stories of him would, would go with them. And for him, that just wasn't okay. And so what he did was he started putting all his effort and all his energy and attention into making his paintings. Because he figured, well, once all these people die, once I die and all these people die, my paintings will still live on. And because of that, I will still be remembered in some way, shape, or form. My paintings will say, for me, I was here, and I matter. At our core, we're trying to find ways to feel like we matter. And that instinct within us, it's not necessarily a bad thing. In many ways, it's a good thing, because it's because we have this innate sense within us that, that life is important, that being alive, it matters. But so often, the way that we try to prove we matter is, is by gaining recognition and approval of others. Maybe we do that by, by what we make and what we do or getting respect of our colleagues or our coworkers, or even trying to get the approval of, of others or the approval of our parents. We want to feel like we matter, to feel special and important, to have someone validate our life. And Jesus is looking around the table at how all these people are trying to do that in this specific way. How he sees them wanting to feel important in the eyes of all these other people, wanting to appear great before each other, and to feel like they matter. And he sees that. He, he shakes things up a little bit. And he says, is that really the way that you need to feel seen and to feel significant? Is this really the right way to do it? Is your worth and being dependent upon the assessment of others? How about I just tell you another way? So he goes on to talk about a second thing. That second thing is the path of humility. And verse Seven, we read, when Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, is Jesus just giving them suddenly a, some bland moral advice for how to get ahead and to win everyone's approval? You know, a kind of a way to, to game the system to feign humility so that everyone will imagine that you're actually really humble, when, when in reality, you know deep down that this is just how, what you're doing to get their attention. I, mean, I've, I know people do this. I've heard people talk about how this passage is something which they've used to do that exact same thing. But the thing is, I, I think we can sometimes be at risk of reducing this story just down to a moral platitude. 
and a little bit of moral advice for how to be respected in life. And, and the problem with that is it, it takes this whole passage out of its context of what it is that Jesus is trying to do, out of the heart work that he's trying to do here. Sometimes when I fly on a plane, um, I, I get this low-level anxiety. It's not about being in the air. I'm actually very okay with being in the air. It's not about being in a tight little metal tube huddling through the sky. For some reason, I'm very okay with that. It's not even about my legs getting like crunched from the lack of leg room. Um, I'm not as okay with that, but I deal with it. You know, when I'm boarding a plane, I get this low-level anxiety that my seat is already going to be taken. Or that I'm actually going to accidentally sit in someone else's seat. And I just don't want the embarrassment of discovering that I'm sitting in someone else's seat, or the awkwardness of saying, um, excuse me, I, that, that's my seat. And so when I'm getting onto a plane, I'm looking at my ticket, I'm like, 32B, 32B, okay. B, 32B. I just keep checking it over and over again, just to make sure that I have the right spot, and so that I can feel confident sitting in my seat. Because I really don't want the experience of feeling embarrassed or awkward about my seat. I want the confidence in knowing that I'm in the right place. And really, more than anything else, this is an issue of my pride. When Jesus saw them vying for the places of honor, he didn't just watch them. He, he saw into them. He saw their heart. He saw them trying to feel important in everyone else's eyes and, and not wanting to be embarrassed. He saw that in their hearts, they were wrestling with pride. And so he says, be humble. Walk in the path of humility. Take, take the lowest seat. About a thousand years ago, there was a, a Christian thinker named Bernard, Bernard of Clairvaux. And he got a letter from someone saying, I want to know how to grow in humility. How, how do I do that? And Bernard didn't really have a, a quick answer for him. He had to stop and, and think about it. And after a while, he, he came up with an answer for this guy. And because he was a theologian, it wasn't just a, a short little quick answer in one page of paper. He, he wrote a full book for the guy which some of you have experienced from me. Uh, he, <laughs> he wrote a whole book for this guy, which he called the, the 12 Degrees of Humility and Pride, which is kind of like the original 12-step program. And he likens growing in humility to traveling along a road. He says, imagine you're traveling to a town. Say we're going up to Whistler to ski this weekend, or in a few months. Well, the road you take to get to that town, it's, it's the same road you take to leave it to. When you're going to Whistler, you go up the Cedar Sky to get there, and you take the Cedar Sky to get straight back down. He says the path to growing in humility is the same road as growing in pride. The difference is what direction you're going in. He said that our focus can either be looking towards God or looking towards ourselves. When our hearts and our eyes are focused on God, I'm looking the right way, good, then we're growing in humility. But when we fix our attention upon the self, we start growing in pride and go the other direction. And the more Bernard sat with this, the more he realized he struggled to explain how to grow in humility because too much of his own experience was spent going in the opposite direction. He was on the right road, but he himself was driving in the wrong direction. And in order to grow in humility, he realized that he had to reckon with his pride. He had to start reversing his steps. And as he did this, he said it was kind of like going up and down a hill. And as he identified a series of steps or degrees of humility and pride, 
he began to realize this is kind of like a scale. You go up and down. And when we take a step towards one of these things, one of these directions, we end up taking a step away from the other. And he realized that the first step he took in the wrong direction was taking his eyes off of God. Taking his eyes off of looking towards God and instead allowing them to wander around and to focus on other things for significance and importance. He said pride begins by looking in the wrong direction. And as he went further down that, that road of pride, he starts describing steps and stages which begin to map onto some of the things that Jesus was seeing happening around that table. People were boasting around the table about how well they did things. They were explaining what made them so special and important compared to everybody else. They were elevating themselves above each other in their own eyes. And as a result, they became enslaved to the affirmation of others. They were vying for the places of honor around the table in an effort to make themselves feel significant and like they mattered. Because they were trying to fill and satisfy that innermost desire to feel like their life mattered. And they were doing it by looking in the wrong direction. They were desperate for the approval of others, trying to prove themselves in each other's eyes and saying what made them so unique and boasting about what they had done. And because they didn't know how much they already mattered to God, they felt that they had to fill this, this hole within them with other things. The author C.S. Lewis, he writes, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. And then he finishes, he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. The path of, of humility, of growing in humility, it means taking our eyes off of ourselves and fixing them on Jesus. Because when we look at Jesus, we end up seeing a few things. We first of all see that God is God and that we are not. We behold him clearly as God and realize that we aren't God. That's a good thing. And as we behold God clearly, we also begin to behold ourselves clearly too. Soberly, even. And we can see all the things that are deficient in ourselves we see the truth that we are sinful. And third, if we keep looking, we will see that even though we are sinful, we are loved. And we matter to God. We matter so much that God in Christ came into the world to save us from our sins and to free us from the weight and the curse of that sin. Uh, I just recently learned about a, a piece of art. It's called Christ of the Abyss. It's a bronze statue of Jesus. It's about eight feet tall, and it's been submerged in the bottom of the ocean, about 50 feet under the surface off the coast of Italy. And it depicts Jesus coming into the deepest depths, how Jesus comes into the abyss. Because no matter how deep our sin reaches, his love goes deeper still. And as we see him, as we fix our eyes on him, what we realize is that we already matter. We already matter. Our life is already significant. We don't need someone else to validate it. 
We don't need to vie for seats of honor because we already matter to God. And we're more loved than we can ever possibly begin to know. And so we can take the lowest place at the table because our value and self-worth isn't bound up in where we sit. We're already loved. And we matter to the God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is. We matter to the God who came to join us in the abyss of sin and death and who has freed us from the cost and the curse of sin and death and has now raised us in fullness of life to join him. And we've become captivated by that. When we got caught up in looking at that and realizing that that's the kind of love that God has for us in Jesus Christ, we start becoming that, that cheerful, interesting person who starts to take a real interest in what people say to us because we no longer have anything to prove. And we begin to realize that that person that we're talking with now is, is just as significant as we are. Jesus did the exact same thing for them too. And this is what leads Jesus in, into his third conversation point around this table. It's a conversation about the position of the host. In verse 12, we read, Then Jesus said to the host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Throughout this encounter, we've gone from everyone with their eyes on Jesus and watching him carefully to Jesus watching everyone else. And now finally, Jesus is talking to someone specific. He's talking to the host. And if you remember from earlier, this host was a prominent Pharisee, quite possibly the, the leading religious person in this town. And now Jesus, this, this visiting preacher, is publicly speaking to one of the most important people in the town in front of other people, and he's telling him what he's doing wrong. I mean, imagine you've just invited a bunch of people over for dinner. You've spent all the time prepping, getting your house clean, ready, making all the food, and, and all the guests come. And then during the dinner, one of your guests pipes up and starts telling you in front of everyone else everything that you've done wrong. How to cook your food better. How you need a bigger table with more chairs around it. Excuse me? What are you doing? I did this for you. What, what are you doing telling me how to do this better? As I mentioned at the beginning, every time Jesus comes to dinner, he makes things uncomfortable. He challenges people and he challenges his host. He turns to his host and he says, Don't you see? Don't you see? It's not about the place of honor. It's not about what others think of you. It's not about feeling significant because of what the people around you say or think about you. It's about seeing God. It's about seeking his face and following him in all your ways. It's about the kingdom of heaven. It's about realizing that God sees you and that he, you matter to him and that everyone around you matters to him too. This reminds me of the summary of the law that we read earlier in our service where Jesus says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is telling his host that he should be inviting other people to come to his table, people who can't repay him, people whose society tells us don't matter, 
the people who we are keen to overlook. And in fact, back in that time, the people that Jesus starts telling him to invite, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of their day wouldn't have just thought that they were unworthy of being at their table. They thought that these people were religiously unclean. But Jesus turns the tables and he says, no. No, these people matter. And they matter in the kingdom of heaven. They matter to God, they matter to me, and they need to matter to you too. Why? Because they are significant. In the eyes of God, they matter. And the kingdom of heaven is open to them, and the kingdom of heaven is open to you. Because in God's eyes, you matter. And this has some profound implications for us around hospitality. Uh, It's been said that humility and hospitality are twin virtues. They go hand in hand together. And I want to unpack this, but I'm running out of time. So next week, come back. Colton's actually going to speak more about this as he unpacks the the parable of the great banquet, which comes right after this. Um, So that's a plug for next week. Come back for Colton. He'll do great. I'm I'm really looking forward to that. I'm trusting that to his hands. Um, And with that, I want to just explore one final detail. Who is the host? Who is the host? Is it this Pharisee who owns the house? Because, I mean, that's what this passage said, right? It was the house of a prominent Pharisee. But in practice, he's kind of stopped hosting the meal. He's stopped playing the host. And Jesus has kind of taken hold of this dinner and this conversation. It's almost as though Jesus has become the host. The theologian Justo Gonzalez says, when Jesus comes to dinner, he will not be a passive guest. On the contrary, he will take charge and in a sense become the host. Do you see? Jesus has become the host because he is the true host. He always has been. And he is revealing to us who it is that he is inviting to his banquet. He's inviting the humble and the poor the powerless, the lost, the lonely. He's inviting everyone who will turn and look to him. And he will exalt the humble. It's interesting that earlier in this passage, verse 8, Jesus says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast. Did that stick out to any of you? It stuck out to me. Why did he say that? Because he wasn't at a wedding. He was just at a dinner. What's he talking about saying when you get invited to a wedding I think he's pointing to something. Because he could have just said when you come to dinner, when you get invited to a dinner, he's saying, no, there's something different here. I'm pointing to a wedding feast. He's pointing to his own. In Revelation 19, um, it talks about a wedding. There's an image of a wedding. It's the, the wedding of the Lamb of God and the bride, his bride, which is the church. And in Revelation 19, verse 9, it says... Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are you who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are you. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the poor, the weak, the lonely. Blessed are the the crippled, the lame. Blessed are the Pharisees who get invited too. Blessed is everyone who gets invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because Jesus is the true host. And he exalts the humble. Everyone who turns and looks to him, who seeks his face, he exalts us at his supper. 
having already humbled himself for us, even to the point of death on a cross, having come down into the abyss. There he's raised us, he's exalting us to come be with him. And he invites us to come dine with him, to feast and to celebrate. And there's no need to vie for a place of honor. No need to try to feel significant. Because you are known to God. You are known by Jesus. And in the kingdom of heaven, you are seated at the table of Jesus Christ, and you have been invited in. Invited to dine at the greatest feast, the greatest banquet in all of history. So today, may you know that you are seen by the God of the universe, and he's crazy about you, and you matter to him. He says that you are significant. And may you humble yourself before him and seek his face. Look towards him. Pursue him. And may he exalt you. May he lift you up and raise you to be with him at his feast, at his banquet. May you come join in the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let's pray.